This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of October 28th, 2013, and I'm Michael Howie, welcoming you to episode 104 of Defender Radio. We're exceptionally excited about this week's episode with interviews from dog rescuer and counselor Darlene Grady-Lunn, APFA member and wildlife rehabber Kelly Polsonelli, and one of our favorite celebrity supporters, Biff Naked. In Ontario, the leaves are changing and the air is getting crisp. That means it's the season for winter coats and, unfortunately, fur trim. Defender Radio News But last week in Ottawa, a group of advocates started a campaign to educate residents about the truth of Canada Goose and other fur trims. Defender Radio was on the ground on the first day of leafleting. Tyler Jamison is an English teacher and advocate and spoke to Defender Radio from the University of Ottawa campus, where he and dozens of supporters handed out leaflets and shared the truth about fur trim. To get involved with this campaign, check out the Facebook event, which you can find the link to at FurBearDefenders.com. Defender Radio News. Animal advocacy, rehab, rescue and activism take a toll on the psyche. Constant exposure to horrific imagery, empathizing with non-human animals, and the knowledge that cruelty is very real can wear down even the most dedicated. Darlene Grady-Lunn, operator of Marley's Hope Dog Rescue and an advocate for animals in Nova Scotia, knows this fact well. But in her other life, Darlene is a counselor for those struggling with addiction and understands that despite all the hardships of life, there is always hope. 
Darlene joins Defender Radio now to discuss the emotional difficulties associated with animal advocacy. For people who work with or for animals, what kind of common issues do you find them struggling with? From my perspective as, you know, in rescue, um, what I generally see is just like a sense of hopelessness, I think, sometimes where people are just, they feel like there's just, there's never enough people to meet the demands of, you know, saving the animals and, and doing what needs to be done. Um, a lot of it is, you know, centered around, like, I think frustration and, and depressed, you know, a depressed sense of not really having the resources available to help. You know, there's, there's, I guess, you know, from one end of the spectrum to the other, you see people who are, you know, almost in a rage because of, you know, things that happen. But then on the other end, you know, people that just have, you know, an, an apathy, if you will, of, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to hear about this because it upsets me. So just, you know, I don't kind of put the blinders on, if you will. Um, but then, like I said, the other end is, you know, rage and frustration and anger um, at the situations and at what's happening to the, you know, to that specific animal. How do you personally combat the stresses that arise from your work? Um, well, I think for me, I, I have a pretty decent awareness of the importance of self-care and making sure that I'm, you know, practicing self-care on a regular basis. I'm not perfect at it and, you know, certainly fall fall prey to, you know, not really taking good care of myself at times and need, you know, need that kind of reminder. Um, but I guess for me, it's more like my family is very important to me. So I spend a lot of time with my family and of course with my dog, Marley, and try to, you know, do things that help me relax and, and, uh, kind of rejuvenate and make myself feel like I can, you know, kind of keep going on and fight in the fight, if you will. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that self-care is important for no matter what you're doing, I think if you're not taking care of yourself, then that's going to that's gonna be very evident very quickly and it's going to potentially manifest itself in ways that are harmful to you. Could you expand a bit on the concept of self-care? Um, well, I mean, self-care is really determining what works for you. I mean, a lot of, you know, the clients that I work with, um, when we talk about self-care, some of the things that we talk about are ways that they feel relaxed. So that could be walking, it could be, um, journaling, it could be, you know, exercise, um, spending time with people that, you know, that you enjoy, their, their company, um, really anything can be, you know, a, a method of self-care, just it's, it's very individual, but some of the most common ways are, you know, exercise and, and healthy eating and being, being cautious around, you know, alcohol and, and any type of recreational drugs that someone might be using. Um, those are, you know, they're, they're a popular method of self-care, but they're, they're not oftentimes they're beneficial. So more healthy outlets to kind of help you, you know, relax and rejuvenate yourself and build some resilience to what you're experiencing. Is it possible for people who may not be frontline workers, but are advocates and exposed regularly to images of cruelty to also be traumatized? Yeah, that's actually an interesting question. And, and I think that that's something that we are probably not paying enough attention to. Um, 
I think for some people, and, and certainly not to, you know, I'm sure that there would be a lot of controversy around what I'm about to say, but kind of the effects of 9-11 when people were, you know, continuously exposed to, you know, the buildings coming down and, and the aftermath of what had, had occurred in, in New York, um, I think that's, in, in many respects, it's similar to when you're constantly flooded with images and stories about, you know, animals or other, you know, whatever it is, whether it be dogs or cats or, you know, seals or whatever the animal is, um, I think that that constant flooding can certainly cause trauma for people. Um, you know, the Internet is an awesome, fantastic networking, you know, device, if you will, to to really share animals and to share their plight and to share, you know, what needs to be done and to raise money and to do all these very great things. Um, but at the same time, there's thousands of these images being shown um, where animals are, you know, horrifically injured and they have, you know, just, they're just in terrible situations. And each time, you know, someone sees this or reads about it, um, there's there's a small little bit of trauma that comes with that. And so to answer that question, I think it's certainly possible that people who are not necessarily frontline or in the in the trenches, so to speak, are, you know, certainly exposed to that on a, on a very regular basis. You only have to look at a Facebook page for any rescue and there's, you know, there's stories of, of you know, abuse and neglect and really terrible things that have happened to these, these animals and, you know, the people who are trying to help them or to create awareness around it are sharing that story. And it's, you know, it can definitely, definitely have some secondary exposure for people that are, that are struggling to make the world better for animals. When someone has hit bottom, when they feel they have nothing left to give, is there some kind of hope we can offer them? I think there's always hope, and I think that, you know, once again, it's being aware of limits. And, you know, in in rescue, I mean, for me, um, you know, a, a way that I try to combat burnout is to make sure that I set limits for myself, and I, and I recognize those limits. So, you know, if, if our funds are low, then we can't accept that job no matter how dire the situation is. If we can't, we can't do it, we can't do it. And taking and giving myself permission to not feel like I have to fix everything and to fix the whole world. And I think that that's, you know, once again, the preventative is obviously much better than the cure. But, you know, when someone is feeling that they're just at their, their last, they can't go on any longer, I think that maybe that's at the point where, you know, maybe they need to speak with a professional and try to see what they can do to kind of bring themselves back up because it can be all-consuming and it can certainly take over your life if you allow it to. And people that care and are determined to do better for creatures, no matter what the species, um, are usually pretty passionate and they, they tend to focus a lot of that energy on what they're trying to fix and what they're trying to save versus on themselves. And when that burnout happens, it can, you know, it can be disastrous for other families. For them, you know, they, they may not be able to continue doing the advocacy that they are doing. So, you know, seeking professional assistance and, you know, being having a good network of supports is also very important as well. So I think that's probably, you know, the hope that we could offer them is is to be willing to reach out and to recognize the signs in other people if you're involved with rescue when someone is reaching that point and, and you know, giving a gentle 
gentle reminder and, and some suggestion on, you know, I know, you know, your things are not going so well for you. What can I do to help? Or I, you know, I can refer you to someone to speak with, you know, those types of things. To get in touch with Darlene or find out how you can help Marley's Hope Dog Rescue, visit www.marleyshope.com or search for Marley's Hope Dog Rescue on Facebook. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at gateswildlifecontrol.com or call 416 450-9453. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America's song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing Keystone species. This is Defender Radio. When she's not busy being a rock star, a spokesperson for the fight against cancer, a businesswoman, a vegan yogi, or an artist, Biff Naked is a protector of fur-bearing animals. A longtime supporter of APFA, Biff has regularly spoken out against the cruelty of the fur trade and trapping industries. She joins Defender Radio to discuss how her journey led her to being an advocate for numerous causes and why she's able to maintain a positive outlook on life. Biff, you're an extremely spiritual person. How did you begin on that path? Well, you know, um, my parents were missionaries. So the, the home that I was raised in uh, was a very, uh, a very nice bubble. <laughs> it was a very happy and uh, spiritually supportive world that I came into. And uh, just kind of by accident, geographically, I was uh, born in this incredibly auspicious place. And uh, my parents were living and working in India at the time, uh, as was my birth mother. So a lot of uh, a lot of my upbringing has been uh, very, um, I guess, spiritually and culturally diverse. And uh, there was a bit of a duality that went on. Even though my parents were Christian missionaries, they always wanted to encourage and support uh, what was considered our birthright as Indian-born children, uh, and we were very, um, very much uh, kind of, I guess, enmeshed in Hindu theology and also Hare Krishna when I became older and, and started to become just more interested in all the deities and uh, gods and demigods. Um, you know, I fixated on Krishna 
because he was such a friend of the gopis and the animals. So this is something that I identified with very young, and uh, it stayed with me. And then throughout my adolescence, um, you know, I was encouraged to to push further into this. And of course, there were a lot of punk rock kids at the time that kind of um, discovered the Hare Krishna movement, and it really became uh, like a Krishna punk uh, socio-political movement, but more than anything, more even than religious, it was basically uh, a conscious philosophy. You know, it was a mindset. And uh, most of the Krishna punks, obviously, were vegetarians or vegans. And, uh, and you know, that awareness uh, just really was always permeating my thought and my consciousness. So, you know, once I was an adult, I started to really implement a lot of those beliefs into my life. Did your childhood homes and travels influence your perspective of animals in some way? Oh, certainly. Like, it, I mean, we were raised in North America, for sure. And, of course, uh, we had been to zoos and everything. My daughter moved up to uh, northern Manitoba when we were little kids, and then we moved to Kentucky and then back to Winnipeg in our teenage years. We had a family dog, and dogs have always been a big part of my, my personal life and my, my family life. So, I mean, you know, family lover, a family of dog lovers and animal lovers. My sisters had hamsters and, you know, all, all the other pets that kids had in the 70s and 80s. Um, but, you know, in India, my parents had brought back with them a collection of photographs from the various communities that my father worked in. Um, he was a dentist. And, uh, you know, it was not unusual for them to see uh, bears in the town that were um, entertainment or or used for entertainment from from some of the traveling uh, people that would frequent the town square. So we started early to see photographs of this. And plus, in the 70s and 80s, I think that every girl in fifth grade had a rabbit's foot. You know, I think that everyone had a pink rabbit's foot keychain or something like this. And it's remarkable to me now because where I live in British Columbia, that's not cool. (laughs) That's just not, people just don't have that type of thing here without being called out on it, usually. Like someone will, you know, point it out to you. Hey, do you know that's, you know, that's somebody's pet? Like, do you you get that? Like, hey, do you know that's not not okay? Uh, But, of course, other places in the world, geographically, these types of things still are very, very popular. And I am always very... uh, very shocked by this and, you know, start to realize that I do really live in my happy little bubble where, you know, I'm not, I don't have a lot of uh, exposure to just kind of the mindless, the mindlessness, I guess, of it all. Like the the disconnect that seems to be, you know, never mind the disconnect of people's diets. That's a totally separate subject because it's such a, a huge part of the world, but the, the whole rabbit foot style, mindless 
you know, um, use of, of animals is something that I still I find shocking now. At what stage did animal welfare and advocacy become part of your life? You know, when I got into my um, early 20s, so we were, um, you know, kind of headed vegan anyway, just because of, you know, the, the punk movement, the Krishna punks, you know, that was kind of permeating our minds anyhow. Um, I think that it all just kind of blended into one one effort, uh, one personal effort rather than different separate causes. You know, the the animal rights, the farm animals, the fur-bearing animals, all kind of fall under one umbrella uh, for me. And I think that every year that passes, my hope as an individual is that I evolve and that I refine, fine-tune, and amp up my awareness, uh, my service, you know, and my ability to communicate or or try and uh, express myself and my and and what I my hopes are. Um, I just hope that I can be more effective every year, and also refine my own awareness and my own life. You know, when someone makes a decision consciously to go vegan, to self-identify as vegan, it's not as simple as switching from chicken to tofu. You know, there are many different areas in our lives that we can uh, make a better effort, and that's as consumers and in some of the products in our homes and the, the cleaners and the, the fabrics we use and just so it's just so many different things that we can do that will encompass that and allow us to have a vegan lifestyle rather than simply a vegan diet. And so it all kind of falls under the same umbrella. And the fur, um, you know, uh, is, uh, is a whole, uh, it, it's a frustrating a frustrating topic many times uh, because a, a lot of people will kind of say, well, it's the same as leather, and a lot of people will find other excuses and, and try and, um, I guess, discredit uh, someone who's trying to be <laughs> expressive about about what their beliefs are. And uh, it, it's always interesting. And again, debating is healthy and good, and I love debating and and uh, it, it's worth it. For animal lovers and those who are focused on human rights or other issues, it can be very difficult to keep going. How do you stay so positive? Oh, it is hard. It is our whole life's work. I believe that is our life's work. It is brutal. I mean, to have to, you know, I know so many people, myself included, from time to time, when you, when you know how much uh, just... Just what people are capable of doing and uh, what people will justify in activities and in animal cruelty. And you just think, how can I go on? How can I go to the grocery store and eat this papaya knowing this is going on in the world right now? Like really, you know, sometimes and for many people, it becomes just too much to bear. There's so much pain, tragedy, terror, fear in this world. And it's hard sometimes to keep perspective, to stay positive, and to keep working. Um, 
and doing what what you do to either raise awareness, try and change mindset. You know, like many things in life, um, in this world, you know, there are so many things in our culture, in the cultures all over the world, you know, whether it's bare bile farming, uh, whether it's civil war in Africa, whether it is, um, you know, hate crimes that go on in the world. I mean, there's so many things that occur on a day-to-day basis. Sometimes it seems like it will be so daunting. There is no possibility that a person, an individual who has any semblance of consciousness or, um, you know, compassion, how, how can we go on? How can we be positive in the day? But really, I think that I never lose faith in humanity, first and foremost. Um, I don't think that individuals define or dictate what an entire culture believes. I also don't believe that individuals can ruin humanity, from my perspective, on humanity. Um, you know, there there are people who work in animal rescue, for example, and uh, occasionally us lay people will uh, be privy to images or stories of such insurmountable horror that I ask myself, I don't know if I could effectively do that job without having my knees absolutely buckle every day. How do they do it? And I just marvel at it because I think, and they do it, and they are clear-headed, and they are effective, and they're, they're good at what they do, and they're compassionate, and they get up in the morning, and they do it again because the need is always there. And I think that's the bottom line. The need is there. The calling is there. You know, there is always going to be uh, a reason to keep going in any movement, whatever it is, whether you're uh, fighting for civil rights, whether you're fighting for animal welfare, whatever it is. There's always a reason, no matter how daunting or defeated uh, that we get, whenever it seems like, you know, we're not making a dent. there always is. There always is. We might not be able to see it. There's always good in it. I do believe in my heart um, that the tragedies we experience, they are teaching us. They teach us to be resilient. They teach us to keep trying. They teach us to keep going and keep fighting on behalf of, not just on behalf of our own beliefs, but on behalf of animals and the volunteers that work with those animals. You know, it's, uh, I mean, it's never going to be without merit. The the work that we do or the, the things that we say, our efforts will never be unnoticed, even if it's just by one or two people. Because eventually, eventually, it always, always trickles down and some somebody will get it that didn't get it the day before and will save an animal. Some, somehow, I just have to believe that. And I think that it's not blind faith. I think that that's what most people really believe. They really believe that it will make a difference, and it will. You support a lot of different causes, which run the gambit from animal rights to breast cancer. 
Is it difficult to justify protecting animals while we're still looking for a cure for cancer and solutions to poverty? Oh, it's important to care about everybody. Like, and, and that's my point. I think that there is room. We do have room in our efforts. Everyone has room in their efforts. And people like supporting um, medical foundations and helping patients. And people like supporting children's charities. People like supporting humanitarian organizations uh, that work in the Middle East and, and in Africa. You know, of course. But... I always say there's also so much that we can do to raise awareness. And when you raise awareness about protecting wildlife and protecting um, creatures, critters, animals from the fur industry and from the fashion industry and from, you know, biofarming, from all of these atrocious things, they serve no purpose. There is no purpose to that. And they are horrendous. You know, it's, to me, it's common sense. I don't think it's because people who defend animals, I don't think they're any more um, benevolent or, or kind than any other human. I think everyone has it in them to help and support organizations, it's common sense. It doesn't make sense to me that, you know, people need these products. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So, you know, my, my truth, living my truth is to, to verbalize, it doesn't make sense to me. And ho hopefully I might influence someone else who would go, oh, I guess it doesn't make sense, and they will stop supporting that industry, too, like anything. It, it just seems, it just is so much common sense to me. How can, how can we not protect, protect animals? How can we not? Thanks for joining us, Biff. To find out more about Biff and her upcoming shows, events, and projects, visit her website at www.biffnaked.com. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. The average North American consumes five times more than a Mexican, ten times more than a Chinese person, and thirty times more than a person from India. We are the most voracious consumers in the world. A world that could die because of the way we North Americans live. Give it a rest. November 26 is Buy Nothing Day. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at arrivealive.org. Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg hold, conibear, and other body gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Furbearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at furbearerdefenders.com to find out how you can give hope for our fur-bearing friends. 
Hi, my name is Beth Naked, and you're listening to Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. I'm ashamed to be human. It seems a common sentiment among those in the worlds of animal rights and advocacy. On Facebook, the statement can regularly be found in the comments sections of posts about abuse, neglect, or horrors committed against non-human animals. In conversation, it often crops up, and I completely understand why people feel that way. But I don't. Human beings have done, and are doing, and likely will continue to do, horrible things against each other and against those who are weaker, regardless of species. The pain and fear inflicted by our hands is immeasurable. When I was running a newspaper, I would spend my days reading about child abuse and domestic violence. I would regularly write about corruption, senseless violence, and tragedy. I'd go home and watch videos or discuss non-human animals being abused or tortured, be it on farms or in traps. The world is full of evil actions, all of it stemming from humanity. But each day I also speak to people who survived that evil. They did not become what the cycle of abuse demanded. They are now caring, compassionate people. They know the pain of being abused, and instead of lashing out with abuse of their own, they stand for those who cannot stand on their own. I talk with people who have made personal choices, veganism, advocacy, or a life in social services, that make a difference. While the evil in the world will go on, the number of people standing against it in their own way will also grow. In an inky night that feels impossible to escape, they will be bright stars. They are hope. I am ashamed of what our species has done. But knowing that out there are so many who will not repeat the mistakes of the past, that there are those who can smile in the face of it and remind me that love does conquer all, well, they make me proud to be human. Give a gift and help protect Canada's fur-bearing animals. Learn more about our gift donations and memberships at furbearerdefenders.com. When a squirrel or small mammal is injured in the wild, there is often no hope. But in Durham region, Kelly Polsonelli has created Hope, a world of second chances. The owner and operator of Wild Earth Refuge, Kelly is one of a handful of small independent wildlife rehabilitators north of Toronto. Between being a mother, teacher, vegan writer and speaker, Kelly finds time to care for and eventually release hundreds of small mammals. She joins us now to talk about her journey to becoming a wildlife rehabber. Hi Kelly, why don't we start at the beginning? Why did you decide to get into wildlife rehab? Well, it starts to it started the same way it starts for most people who call me, and um, they have found an orphaned or wild creature that needs help. And every place they've called is they either um, get no call back, or they're told if you bring it here, it's going to be euthanized. Uh, so you have this innocent creature in your hands. Your only other alternative is to send it back outside to die, or you keep it and try and uh, raise it and care for it yourself. So that's how I started. I started by taking in squirrels, and people got to know who I was and um, that I was doing this and treating them and raising them up to when age they had to be to be released and then releasing them. But then there came a time when we, I had some squirrels that came in that were ill. And the way that the laws stand right now is that the wildlife belongs to the Ontario government. So if you take a 
a wild creature into a veterinarian office, they will euthanize it or they won't take you. Um, so it's really hard to get medicine for an animal that needs it and to treat it for the common illnesses that it comes in with, like a pneumonia, hypothermia. Um, so I had uh, one animal that I could not take care of and it ended up passing away. And I think at that point, I realized that if I wanted to do this, I really had to do it correctly. And uh, so I went, started the process of becoming a rehabber from there. Um, I never wanted to be put in a situation again where I could not help an animal um, and as much as I needed to. What was the process like once you decided to get involved? Well, and there's actually no formal training. Um, there is a, when you inquire with the Ministry of Natural Resources about becoming a rehabilitator to send you a package, it includes uh, 500 possible questions we're going to ask you on a test. And the test will consist of 100 of those questions and you have to get 80% or higher. Um, so you write the test at your Ministry of Natural Resources office and if you pass that, then the next step is to have um, a clinic and the appropriate size of housing and medical supplies. So you're basically sending up a rehabilitation facility that has to be inspected. So once you've done your exam and you've had your inspection, then you get an authorization. It is a lengthy process, um, because and it requires it actually it's an investment of a lot of time and a lot of money. And this is um, one area where it, you you don't get paid. I mean, it's all based. It's you're totally relied on donations to get you through, and um, there's no funding at all from the Ontario government. Um, so. I mean, but I wanted to do better than that. So I actually spent uh, a year being trained by a very good rehabilitation center up in Sandy, uh, called Sandy Pines Wildlife Center. And um, they taught me a lot of things that I would have never known um, if I didn't get that training. And I probably would have a lot of loss of life because there's many things that you need to know when an animal comes in because they always come in. Uh, you know, either injured or very extremely dehydrated or in state of hypothermia. So uh, you need to handle those situations. So you, you don't have time to guess and you don't have time to look it up in a book. Are there any unique challenges you face as a small operator? Okay, well, a small operation with, uh, I'm working out of my home. So I'm working in uh, basically a one-room area in my basement. So room, resources, money, you name it, and we're trying to jump hurdles over it, basically. We're fairly new, so we don't have a big volunteer and foster base, which is something we definitely have to work on for next year. And the demand is extremely high in Durham, as it is probably everywhere. Um, and I can't possibly take every animal in that needs to be, that needs help. Um, with me, it's, it's not enough time and the day to be able to balance everything. So I'm answering the phone, I'm taking animals in, I'm feeding animals, and I have to keep this all in, in balance. And, and so you're very, very organized with what you do. Um, and plus, as a small operation, you don't get as much funding or donations from, uh, from people. So you, you have to find time to do that as well. So there's just a small operation. There's, just, there's not enough room. There's not enough resources. 
to, uh, that we need um, to actually to effectively help the wildlife in this area. What kind of advice would you offer to someone interested in getting involved with wildlife rehabilitation? Um, well, you know what, you don't have to be a wildlife rehabilitator to be involved. You can volunteer and uh, foster under somebody else's authorization, and I think they, those are huge assets to us. Um, I spent over a year getting trained and three years uh, treating and rescuing wildlife prior to that. So it's important that you know what you're getting into. I would suggest that you spend at least a year volunteering in one of the big rehabilitation centers, or even for a small one. So if that's where you're, you know, where you're going to be, is in a small, going to be opening a smaller one, and and know what you're taking on before you jump in, because I mean it is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job. There's you take calls from any any time of the day. You get animals in any time of the day. You're feeding sometimes every three hours through the night. And when you're tired and you're out of money and you just uh, don't know how you're going to keep on going, I mean, you just you need to know um, where to go, what resources, and, and, and what other people have done. So that information that you get through volunteering is really critical to, to how you're going to handle these situations as they arise. That was Kelly Polsonelli, operator of Wild Earth Refuge in Durham. Check out this episode's blog post for links to Kelly's website and Facebook pages. That's all we've got time for this week. I'd like to thank you all for joining us. And on behalf of APFA and Defender Radio, with the ongoing support of Gates Wildlife Control, this is Michael Howie. Stay informed, stay strong.